Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, March 3rd. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Shayna Walsh. And I'm Isabel Danzis. And here are this week's feature stories. With the arrival of March, spring is just around the corner. And New Yorkers recently kicked off the season at the Lunar New Year Parade. WFUV's Leah Mallory has the story. The Lunar New Year has already passed by us, but that doesn't mean the celebrations stop. All over New York, the Lunar New Year is celebrated by Chinese and non-Chinese people alike to honor the coming spring season. The annual Lunar New Year parade in Chinatown, Manhattan is a New York staple, and this year the streets were flooded with people observing the 25th annual parade. The Lunar New Year, also known as Chinese New Year, marks the arrival of spring and the first new moon of the lunisolar calendar, which is the historic Chinese calendar that distinguishes dates based on the cycles of the moon. Each new moon means the beginning of a new month. For Gregorian calendar users, that means the Lunar New Year kicked off on January 22nd, and the holiday is celebrated for 15 days. Though commonly observed in China, Many other cultures, including South Korea and Vietnam, also celebrate the Lunar New Year with a variety of traditions symbolizing prosperity, abundance, and togetherness. And New York is no different when it comes to honoring the Lunar New Year. At the 25th annual parade in Manhattan, the streets hummed with music and the pops of firecrackers. Giant floats filled the streets carrying women dressed in their respective cultural clothing known as hanfus. Red confetti floated from the sky, and vibrant colored lions danced down the parade route, all while spectators watched in excitement. Stella Sue, a parade spectator, says that she does celebrate the Lunar New Year, and it was her first time at the parade. She says that celebrating Chinese culture in New York demonstrates how diverse New York is. to celebrate all the different cultures here and kind of the salad bowl like like it is. You know, I think the Lunar New Year is something that a lot of the Asian cultures celebrate. And, I mean, it's meaningful because it, it really marks the beginning of a new zodiac year. It's the year of the rabbit. Sue is talking about the Lunar solar calendar where each year is represented by a zodiac animal. According to Chinese astrology, these animals have lucky meaning and are associated with certain qualities. The year of the rabbit represents traits including elegance, intelligence, and longevity. Post-pandemic, Sue says that the turnout this year is what made the parade enjoyable. I think it's just like the vibe and everyone's gathering here. Yeah, just seeing everyone up close like this. It's been a while since we see so many people after the pandemic and everything. And Jen Yu, another spectator, agrees. I came like years ago, but this is the first time it's coming back like in full force post-pandemic. So I think it's awesome. People are clearly like hyped up for it, and it, I mean it's just great to see everyone rallying together. Especially like Chinatown took a huge hit throughout 2022, so it's I mean it's heartwarming to see everyone come together again. The Lunar New Year Parade is only one way in which New York honors various Asian cultures. But there are more things locals can do to support Asian communities year-round. These include purchasing from Asian-owned businesses 
and getting involved with Asian nonprofits and community-based organizations. You can find out more information at www.nycgo.com support for NYC Asian community. With WFUV News, I'm Leah Mallory. That was WFUV's Leah Mallory talking to New Yorkers at the Lunar New Year Parade. Diabetes has become one of the leading medical issues in New York City, with 12% of New Yorkers diagnosed in 2020. Lawmakers and healthcare workers are looking for ways to increase accessibility to necessary lifestyle and medical treatments. WFUV's Rosie Lenz finds out how they plan to address this ongoing epidemic. On the first of this month, the New York City Council held a hearing to address the growing diabetes epidemic in the city and discuss the implementation of three new bills. This new legislation would include a telemedicine accessibility plan, a diabetes reduction plan, and a required sugar warning label on menus in certain restaurants. Dr. Ashwin Vossen, Commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, a key witness at the hearing, said these bills could change the approach to the disease in the city. We share the chair's goal in addressing this critical chronic disease, which impacts the quality of life of so many New Yorkers. Intake of added sugars is associated with increased risk of excess weight, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, stroke, heart disease, and cavities. Dr. Vossen said diet-related diseases, like diabetes, are aggravated by disparities in the city which limit access to health-related information. One of the new bills aiming to confront this issue is the Sweet Truth Act. This act will mandate all chain restaurants to mark certain foods with a high sugar warning label. This is not about telling you what you can and can't do. It's telling you how to do it and how to make a good decision for yourself. That's Councilmember Keith Powers, the sponsor for the Sweet Truth Act. He wants the bill to alert people to the dangers of sugar consumption. Diseases like diabetes are silent killers in our city and throughout our country. Councilmember Powers said that just one beverage can contain more than the recommended amount of added sugar for the entire day. Dr. Lily Rosenthal, a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician who testified at the hearing, says New Yorkers need to see exactly what is in the foods they consume. 80% of chronic diseases, things like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, are actually reversible and preventable with things such as food, sleep, stress management, movement, vice management, or I'll call it, you know, managing risky behaviors thing. You know, these are the things that really keep people healthy. But she says education is still only one part of the solution. We need access to the foods that keep us feeling and functioning well and healthy. And then agency, which is actually super important to put the power of health in everybody's hands. Dr. Rosenthal is referencing the accessibility issues that prevent all New Yorkers from buying healthy food. Kelly Moulton, co-convener of the Interfaith Public Health Network and a registered dietitian who also testified at the hearing, has experience working to address the health disparities in the Bronx. And we can't dismantle these food apartheid zones overnight, but we can empower people with information so they can make more informed choices. And that is what this bill would do, is to warn consumers about the health risks of products that can damage their health. Kelly says currently a number of fast food restaurants include more than the recommended daily amount of added sugars in all sizes except the kids' meals. The Sweet Truth bill would enforce restaurants to be transparent about what is in their food. 
But Kelly says she also hopes the bill will change people's behaviors. I'd also encourage people in these communities to get involved with asking for healthier options to be sold wherever they are buying food and to demand better options from their elected officials. While Dr. Lily Rosenthal agrees that the bill is a good start, she hopes education surrounding preventable diseases like diabetes will continue. It's a good warning label, but it's sort of back-ended. We need to provide also front-end access, education and access for people to make better choices. At this time, the committee has not passed any of the three bills, but they have been laid over for discussion at a future meeting. Until then, advocates continue to emphasize the importance of improving diet and exercise in order to prevent this ongoing epidemic. With WFUV News, I'm Rosie Lenz. That was WFUV's Rosie Lenz speaking about New York City's diabetes epidemic. WFUV's Community Dialogues is a program for frank discussion about race, racism, and racial justice. In this excerpt, WFUV's Jaya Joyce sat down with Joe Wiederhorn, President Emeritus of the Associated Medical Schools of New York. They discussed the organization's efforts to diversify the state physician's workforce. Well, we've done a number of studies and we've reported on a number of studies that have shown that uh, in order to improve patient outcomes, one of the best things that one can do, particularly in under-resourced communities, is to have physicians who are of the same ethnic and racial background as the patients that they're seeing. And this is important because when people go to physicians who look like them, uh, speak the same language that they do, are from similar cultures uh, that they are from, they're more likely to listen to what the physician has to say. They're more likely to follow um, his or her treatment uh, suggestions, and they're, they're just more likely to follow through and then to come back for follow-up appointments and such. So can you tell me about these programs that the nonprofit runs? Sure. So we actually have been running programs to diversify the physician workforce since 1985. So we are not new in this. We've been doing this for many decades. And in 1985, our school started to run programs for high school students. And they would bring high school students into the medical school so that they could see what it would be like to be a physician. And then in 1991, we started our first post-baccalaureate program. That program, and all of these programs um, are under the rubric of our diversity in medicine initiative, so that they're all for students who are either underrepresented in medicine or come from under-resourced communities or school systems. I think the most important thing for people to know is that there are programs out there. If you if you want to go to medical school, you, there are many, many programs out there that will help you. I know that recently the organization received a big funding increase. Can you talk to me about that increase and what it's enabled the organization to do? Sure, sure. I mean, this, this was just a terrific increase in funding. We were able, with this additional funding, we actually started our fifth postback program. And then we also started a program at Staten Island University Hospital 
for students. They go to the hospital and they're paired up with physicians and they learn how to do clinical research, which is really important for students these days. And these are medical students who are doing this. And then we also started five new programs and they are throughout the state. Two of those programs provide MCAT training for students and then we also support a really innovative program at Downstate Medical School which is in Brooklyn and you know when people think about health disparities or the social determinants of health and what does an individual need in order to be healthy and one thinks of people living in you know under-resourced communities Well, unfortunately, given the high cost of living these days and the high cost of medical education, quite a few of our medical school students are really having a hard time surviving. So one of our programs actually pairs up students with a community resource center. And the community resource center helps these students navigate the social services systems that are out there to help them. That was WFUV's Jaya Joyce talking to Joe Wiederhorn from the Associated Medical Schools of New York. In honor of Women's History Month, WFUV will be featuring a series of stories that explore complex women's health issues. In this first installment of the series, my co-host Shayna Walsh looks at how women take care of themselves by learning self-defense. Women are taking safety into their own hands at FitHit, a self-defense school. The Krav Maga Studio teaches three free self-defense seminars a week to help women learn to fight back. My co-host, Shayna Walsh, headed down there to hear about women's safety in New York. Do you feel safe as a woman in New York? No. That was Sophie Wong, a longtime resident of Murray Hill and a first-time attendee of FitHit, a fitness studio located in Midtown Manhattan. Wong was recently assaulted, and she found FitHit by Googling women's self-defense seminars. FitHit specializes in teaching the Israeli martial art Krav Maga, and three times a week, the gym offers free women's self-defense seminars. The classes are an hour long and show women how to be physically and mentally prepared for an attack. The class was created by FitHit's founder, Matan Gavish, as a way to help women protect themselves. General Manager Ryan Natalino says one in five women will be assaulted in their lifetimes, and that the goal of this seminar is to help reduce that number, or... At the very least, save one person's life. You don't hear a lot of people going after alligators and getting attacked by alligators because they know that they're going to attack back. And his mission is um, for women to become that dangerous and be seen that dangerous. Natalino knows firsthand just how effective this training is. In the nine years she's lived in New York, she's experienced four different assaults. The difference between how I reacted when I had no training versus how I reacted when I've had years of training is night and day. And the city didn't change. I did. Natalino says the seminar focuses on three things. Changing women's mindsets about fighting, helping women's awareness, and providing techniques to keep women safe. The seminar begins with basic information, like crime statistics and videos showing the different ways women can be attacked. From here, the seminar moves into a physical portion. Attendees get on their feet to practice strikes, hits, kicks, and escapes. Instructors, including Natalino, emphasize the importance of self-defense in maintaining safety, as law enforcement is not always reliable. Catalina Rodriguez is an attendee of the day's seminar. She says, unfortunately, police can't always respond until a crime has already occurred. 
Usually people care more about when the thing have happened. So, you know, like they pay attention to the case when we are already victims, you know, when we have been affected, but not when the, we are calling for attention or for help. Monica Carrillo is another attendee at the seminar. She said she was assaulted a few weeks ago. On a walk with a friend down Roosevelt Avenue, Carrillo was verbally assaulted for speaking Spanish. The man overheard Carrillo's conversation and followed her and her friend down the block yelling racist slurs. He tried to dehumanize and belittle her for being an immigrant, a Spanish speaker, and a black woman. I'm Afro-Peruvian, and I don't feel safe just because I am in the U.S. Carrillo said that working as an activist in Peru, she experienced a number of verbal and physical assaults. When she moved to the States, she hoped she'd be safer, but she says this hasn't been the case. That's why Creo found FitHit. She wants to help better protect herself. She believes that to better protect citizens, police need to differentiate reports based on language, ethnicity, race, and gender. I think it's important to have um, reports that can be differentiated by the language, by, the, by ethnicity, and by race, because it's really different how you can have an approach to prevent gender violence if you speak Spanish, English, Portuguese, but it's not just the language, it's about the ethnicity, you know? If you're a black woman like me, I can be more hypersexualized, so I know that I need to defend myself in a different way. Carrillo says that by differentiating reports on race, gender, ethnicity, and language, police will be able to better understand how these identities affect assaults. With this information, she thinks police can better learn how to protect communities and fight attackers. Statistics from the NYPD show that overall crime has been going up in New York, but that the number of assaults are still lower than decades past. And that begs the question, what can New Yorkers do to best protect themselves? For Natalino, the answer's easy. Train. Train, 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 train. It is really the only thing I can say. It will change your life, uh, it'll make you feel safer, and it'll actually make you safer. In addition to teaching self-defense, FitIt helps promote a lifestyle that is both physically and mentally engaging for its students. For WFUV News, I'm Shayna Walsh. That was my co-host Shayna Walsh reporting on FitHit, a gym in New York offering free self-defense seminars for women. More information about FitHit's free self-defense seminars and classes can be found on their website, www.fithit.com. Throughout Women's History Month, WFUV's What's What will focus on women's health. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan region. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Shayna Walsh. And I'm Isabel Dances.